Hello, my friends. This is Rick Thomas, and you're listening to the Life Over Coffee podcast. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. I am glad that you are here and a faithful listener to our ministry and these podcasts specifically. In this episode, I want to have a a family meeting. I want to talk about something that is important to me and I, I trust is also important to you. I think from time to time, it is good to set aside some time to talk about those things that are vital to us, that we uh, have these ongoing discussions so that we can continue to mature in, in the processes and in the, the directions that, that we are going. And sometimes it's, easily, uh, it's easy to uh, be self-assured that we're doing the right thing and we never take the time to reevaluate to see uh, what has changed or how we can change, how we can address certain issues in our lives so that we can be uh, better caregivers uh, to those who are within our sphere of influence. And so in this podcast, I want to talk about something that is vital to me, is dear to me, and that is the biblical counseling movement. I have been part of the biblical counseling movement. I guess I could say for several decades now, I have benefited immensely from it personally in my own sanctification. And of course, that that spills out into my my marriage and our uh, children. And and hopefully our our sphere of influence has been uh, impacted in a positive way as well. Uh, the biblical counseling movement, my time working on my master's degree was one of the more transformative times in my life. I have also benefited career, career-wise. I uh, had no idea uh, years ago that this would be uh, the rest of my life, and there have been no regrets. I am thankful for what God has done in me, through me, and uh, has also given me a vocational path to go down, and I trust that I will be able to continue to walk down this path until the Lord takes me home. But maybe more importantly, the thing that I'm most appreciative of is the impact uh, that God has, the work that God has done through the lives that I've had the privilege to interact with over the years as I have watched the Lord do some wonderful things in people's lives, and that is connected to uh, biblical counseling. And so I am an advocate. I'm an advocate of discipleship. I'm an advocate of the Great Commission to go out and make disciples. Uh, there is a particular niche or way in which I do it that, that has uh, associates me with the biblical counseling movement, and so I am associated with it and do have a lot of experience with it. And therefore, I do think that I, I am in a position to, in, in a valid way, to critique it. And I want to uh, do that in a most charitable way uh, in this episode. I do think that it's important from time to time that uh, we always address the log in our eye, whether in a micro sense that you're assessing yourself and how you're interacting with others or uh, interacting your your marriage, your family, your church, or in a macro sense uh, with how we are interacting, our organization, or in this case, the movement, how we are interacting with Christendom at large. I realize it's easier and probably a shorter pathway to critique an integrationist or a secularist, and and we want to do that. Uh, We want to call out inferior models. We want to speak the truth with charity about those models that Uh, ultimately aren't helpful according to God's Word. They don't line up with the canon. But as we do that, we 
want to also make sure that in in a most sober way that we are self-assessing ourselves and our systems and our processes and how we are doing things. Uh, We don't want to operate under a false assurance that we know something when in truth we might not know all that we need to know, that we need to continue to evolve in the sense that it's the same way we talk about progressive sanctification. The Lord regenerated me in 1984, and I'm not that person anymore. I'm a better person. I'm not what I should be, but I am a better person than what I was in 1984 uh, because of the grace of God and, and His work through me. And I trust that you have moved forward and upward and reinvented yourself in the most positive ways as far as your sanctification is concerned. And so it applies the same for a church, and it applies to an organization, or it applies to a movement. And so in this podcast, this is episode 317, I titled it The False Assurance of Knowing Something. And I remember, you know, just a, a an illustration here, uh, after God regenerated me, I knew something. I knew how to be saved. I knew what it meant to be saved. And I knew that the world needed to be saved. And so I went out in all of my passion and all of my enthusiasm, and I I let other people know that they needed to be saved as well. Some of those moments are regretful. I I had the false assurance of, of knowing something. I didn't know all that I needed to know. I needed to mature just a little bit. Now, in time, I I did, and, and thankfully, I'm 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 just as zealous, but but it's it's more um, it's it's a mature uh, zeal that I have. Uh, it's a tempered passion. It's a more focused passion, uh, and it's a better way of going out, uh, in my view, of spreading the gospel. Well, many people who come into the biblical counseling movement have a similar experience. They say, why doesn't everyone do this? And I, I appreciate that, that confident assurance, but with that assurance, we also want to make sure that, that we're doing it in the wisest of ways. And so looking at the biblical counseling movement. Uh, It has been around for 50 years, and there are some problems within the biblical counseling movement, and I want to address those in the most charitable way in this podcast. Uh, Because I deal with this, I'm doing this for a couple of of reasons. Uh, One, I deal with this on a weekly basis, where counselees come to us. They come to our ministry. One just came yesterday, and they said that they were talking to an ACBC counselor, and it did not go well. Now, I realize that is a one-sided story, and I understand what Proverbs 18.17 teaches. I recognize that. But there is a consistent pattern of this complaint about about my people, about my movement, about what we do. And I say we, that I am in that group, and therefore I am qualified to to speak with clarity and and to talk about these things in an open fashion. Honestly, I wish more biblical counselors would would talk this way as well. And so I'm I'm addressing this in this podcast for that reason. It is a weekly occurrence, and that is not hyperbole. And then the second reason is 
Well, we have a training organization, our mastermind program. We train people to do biblical counseling. And so I am doing this podcast for them because I want to inculcate this worldview that I'm sharing in this podcast in uh, in them, in their minds. I want them to understand what I'm saying. I want them to see the severity in what we are doing because the end result of all that we do has a counselee at the end of it. Counselees are the ones that are affected. And I'm very serious about this matter, and I talk to our students openly and plainly about this on a, on a regular basis, and so I'm doing this podcast for them as well. Now, there could be a third reason is that if anyone in the biblical counseling uh, world is willing to listen, give heed, and enter into a discussion, well, is for them as well. It is time, in my view, that the biblical counseling movement rethink our assurances about how we train and educate biblical counselors. The way that we have been doing it, we have been doing it basically the same way for the past half century. There has been modifications, and I'm aware of that, but the the old standard strategy is basically this. We provide training, an organization provides training to an individual, and then when they go through a series of training events, then that student will complete 50 hours of counseling that's reviewed. Typically, it's reviewed remotely by a busy fellow. That's the typical way that it happens. There are times when when the student and the fellow can meet uh, through, like, say, Zoom technology, but that in itself has its own liabilities because you can't replace face-to-face meetings no matter how uh, technical and how advanced we become with our technology. And so what happens? They receive a series of uh, training, and then they go through 50 hours of typically remote-reviewed counseling sessions, and this is third-hand, by the way. And so the biblical counselor meets with someone, they do a counseling session, they fill out a report, and then they turn the report in, and that is reviewed and and talked about. The counselee is typically not talked about. Sometimes they, they will do video or audio of those counseling sessions, but those are all limitations. And then, after they finish their 50 hours, they take take a couple of exams, of course, and then they are granted certification, and what you have is a certified biblical counselor. That's a rough sketch of, of how it typically happens. This process is inadequate, and my appeal is, can we, will we, talk about this problem? There is no worthy discipline that anyone can enter into and acquire credentialing so easily and have the skills to function at a competent level. You cannot go through the process that I just described to you and receive credentialing, and that credentialing means, or is interpreted by most people, as being competent at the craft. That is absolutely impossible. I mean, you could attend a gun class and get your license your, your concealed carry license, but you still need to go to additional training in order to be adept at using a gun. You can go to a swim class, and you could take the classes, but it's still going to take, as Malcolm Gladwell says, 10,000 hours in order to become proficient at swimming at a high level. 
I'm talking about a, a formalized gun person or a formalized swimmer. Or driver's education. You can read the handbook and go through the classes and you can get you can get your driver's license. Funny story, when I got my driver's license at, at 16, I, I went through the class, I, I did all the jumped through all the hoops, I got that, I got my certification, I got my driver's license, and I drove out of the DMV and went right into a ditch. Now I don't recall at this point because it was a hundred years ago. Why I went into that ditch, I don't know if it's because of my over-exuberance about getting my driver's license or I was freaking out because I was driving. I'm not sure. You could take a summer cooking class and receive a diploma of sorts, but you're not proficient. And so whether it's a gun class, swim class, driver's education, summer cooking class, or going through the process that I just laid out for you to become a certified biblical counselor, Nobody can function competently, and it doesn't matter who you are. 100 people out of 100 people will not be competent at any of those things by going through the basic processes in order to receive a license or certificate. Let me give you another perspective on this. I did an interview recently with Jen Chen. She is a clinical psychologist, and I asked her, I said, "What, what did you do to receive your doctorate? in clinical psychology. And then I I emailed her later because I I couldn't remember all the things that she said. And I said, would you give me a list of of what it required to you for you to become a a clinical psychologist? I can't give you an exhaustive listing of all that she said. But remember what I said about becoming a certified biblical counselor? Here are some of the things that Jen Jen Chen said about becoming a clinical psychologist. One, you must get accepted into grad school, which means your GRE scores, your past grades, a shown interest in psychology, and recommendations. So that's how you get in. Number two, first year, there's intensive supervision. The second through fifth years, there are 16 to 20 hours a week practicum with one hour supervision, usually, and two hours of group supervision, usually. Sixth year, there are sixth year. 40-hour-a-week internship. Now, that's not to get a license. If you pursue licensure, you add 2,000 hours under a licensed psychologist. And then every two years, you complete 36 hours of continuing education. And that's what it took for her to get a seat at the table to be a clinical psychologist, a licensed clinical psychologist. A lot of work, a lot of time, and a lot of money. Now, I applaud that. That's what you want. You want someone sitting in front of you who has gone through the rigors to be at a level that will be able to help you. That's also what you would expect from your medical doctor. It is what you would expect from an airplane pilot You want the person who has gone through the rigors and they have been vetted for the highest level of competency, and it is a filtering process. Now, some people would argue that, well, what you just described is for, now, Jen Chen eventually became a biblical counselor, and that's what my podcast 
was about when I interviewed her. Why did you move uh, from a clinical psychologist to a biblical counselor? And she moved for uh, because of the sufficiency of Scripture. I mean, the Bible is a better psychology book, to put it plainly. Uh, but I'm just talking about the training that she had to go through in order to be a clinical psychologist. And some would argue that it's apples and oranges. And I would say, yes, I agree. I agree. They are peddling a false to integrated teaching. It's either all false or, or is a hybrid of true and false. And we are ministering God's word to broken souls. Now, here's my question. Who should be more zealous? Who should be more thorough in their equipping? The secular world who have cisterns that don't hold water or the biblical world that has the water of life? Who should be more zealous and more thorough in their equipping? The problem is, is that every certified counselor receives the same certificate, and that is one of the biggest issues. There is no way to distinguish good ones from bad ones and all the ones in between. There is virtually no way to do that, and that's not even arguable. Thus, what we do is we send Christians out certified, but there are virtually no checks and balances that assess or calibrate how they are doing what they do at the craft of ministering the Word of God. There is no mandatory process for continuing education or a feedback loop for assessment and further recommendations. The primary means of knowing how competent the counselor is at their trade is from the feedback of the people that they counsel. There's other ways to get that feedback, but the primary one is the feedback from the counselee. And in many of these instances, it happens after, it's after something tragic happens. It's similar to lowering the standards to enter a university for equity reasons, but not never admitting or never planning for a candidate's sub par long-term consequences in the workplace. We do this at university. We have now lowered the bar to where anybody can get in because of, well, as I said, for equity reasons. That's a whole political matter. But as an, as an analogy, we're doing a similar thing. The bar is low where anyone can do it, but everybody gets the same degree. And then when you go into the workplace, there's really no way to tell who is really good at this and who is bad because everybody's got the same degree. And so what you have then subpar long-term consequences in the workplace. Now, there are several false assumptions made because of this inferior process that we have created within the biblical counseling movement world. Let me list five false assumptions. Number one, I mean, well, not necessarily number one, but the first one that I'm listing here. The certified biblical counselor may assume they are ready to counsel formally. They see their training as the end, or at least enough for them to counsel formally. And that is a huge mistake. Number two, 
the certifying organization may assume this person is ready to counsel others. Number three, the certifying organization provides a growing and glowing list of certified counselors, which again is an assumption that there are quality counselors. Certified biblical counselors and qualified counselors can be two different things. And I went through this as I've talked about uh, with IABC, the International Association of Biblical Counselors, uh, that I was given a training center with zero vetting. I was allowed to be a certified biblical counselor with zero vetting. And then, of course, uh, that ministry imploded, and they're still trying to work through the shambles of, of what happened uh, a couple of years ago. And that's a worst-case scenario, but as far as I know, all biblical counseling organizations are, are this way in the sense that they don't have the processes that they need in the sense that every counselor is equal, and it's just not true. Number four, the counselee assumes the certified counselor is competent at counseling, and that's a true assumption. And so when you go to the ACBC website, for example, which I'm a fellow with ACBC, and when you go to their website, there is a list, find a counselor, and you can type a zip code in, and all counselors are the same, so find one that will work with you. Well, the counselee is assuming, because this is a certified biblical counselor, that they are competent at their craft. Remember what I said a while ago, every week, Someone is writing in and talking about meeting specifically with an ACBC counselor, and this is what happened. Now, again, caveat, I will caveat that Proverbs 18:17 is always in effect. It's a one-sided story, but after a while, when you hear a thousand of these stories, there has to be some validity to uh, what's going on here, which is why I'm doing this podcast. And then number five, the counselor's local church may similarly assume about their newly minted certified biblical counselor that they are competent, and that is a problem. The biblical counseling community took back the counseling burden from the world by saying God's word is sufficient. That is absolutely the right thing to do. Thank you, Jay Adams. That was the right thing to do. Jay Adams went into the, psych the psychological world and he took it back and says, we believe in sufficiency of Scripture, the greatest psychology book ever written. It's the Bible. We are the ones that should be helping people to work through their issues. Yes and amen. And then we said, anybody can do this. Now, that's... In a sense, that is accurate and not. What we did is we universally misapplied Romans 15, 14 by implying that every Christian is filled with goodness and every Christian has the knowledge to counsel. And that's not true. It's just not true. This poor rendering of God's Word, Romans 15, 14, it's confirmation bias, meaning I have a bias and I read into the Bible to confirm it. It's also called eisegesis. 
And though we were correct to retrieve counseling from the culture, we had no plan to move beyond creating a, a movement that says, in, all, in essence, all counselors are equal. And with no strategy to distinguish the good from the bad or to develop, develop the good to realize their fullest potential, we have a 50-year-old movement stuck in cognitive inflexibility. There is an element of, of mental, mental miserness happening here. We, we don't want to exert more energy on this problem because we're too busy to create space to think through what we are doing. It's similar to the busy fellow certifying someone with a limited process for doing so. He doesn't have the time to vet a counseling candidate thoroughly. Go back to what I described that Jen Chen went through. We can't do that. We can't. We're just we're just too busy. We have a system in place, and and this is this is where I call it cognitive inflexibility. That we have thought about it, we have implemented a system, but we're going to be inflexible in changing because well, then mental miserness comes in because we just don't have time to devote that kind of thinking to developing a more robust training program or organization. And so we have placed the burden on the counselee to find the needle in a haystack so they can experience adequate help from a certified biblical counselor. Because every stalk in the field is the same height, though each stalk's quality is wildly different, we've done a disservice to the Christian community by placing the burden on hurting souls to find and to vet the proper stalk for them. And frequently, they are more disappointed than helped. Now, because our process is inadequate, we are barely equipping while pushing the result and potential accompanying calamity down the road for someone else to fix. Sometimes the counselee will look outside a sufficiency of Scripture camp because pragmatism is more vital to them than standing on God's Word. I'm not faulting a counselee for lowering the bar because I would do the same. There are times when the pain level is so intense that you'll settle for any cure, whether it's pseudo, quasi, or, or true. These inferior organizations and counselors, they gain a foothold which sets us back to pre-Adam's day. What I'm saying here is that because of our inadequacy, uh, because some, again, comp uh, certified counselors don't equal competent or qualified counselors, and when a counselee meets a, an unqualified certified biblical counselor and bad results happen because of pragmatism, that counselee will, I, I'll just give me anybody. I don't care if they're integrationists. I don't care if it's psychologists. Just give me anybody because I, I need help. And so that's what I mean, that we can actually uh, cause integrationists to gain a foothold within our own movement, or we can push them even farther to pre-Adam's day. We can push them back into psychology. Ironically, the biblical counseling movement can be a growth plan for the integrationist and the secularist. The title of this podcast is episode 317, The False Assurance of Knowing Something. We know something, but sometimes 
we don't know what we need to know or all that we need to know. And sometimes we need to rethink what we know and how we can do what we know better. This is something that has been a a major plank in this ministry since its inception in 2008. What we started in 2008 and what we're doing today is radically different. I always want to be thinking, how can we continue to improve? And I don't want to fall into uh, cognitive inflexibility or uh, mental miserness. I, I want to create that space so that I can think, so we can evolve, so that we can do better. Because again, ultimately, the the result, the person at the end of the line is the counselee who is receiving our care. Now, I want to close here by just mentioning, I'm not going to get into the call to action. There's a lot here in the call to action. And you'll just have to go to episode 317 to read it. But I want to just make five suggestions for the biblical counseling movement. Number one, the first step is for the biblical counseling organizations, mine or anyone else's, to clearly state the problem. And I'm doing that now, I think. To clearly state the problem with our training methods that deploy too many inferior counselors to the world or more specifically to counselees. First step. State clearly the problem. Number two, we must recognize and communicate that becoming a competent biblical counselor is not what you may think. We did take counseling from the world, but we really didn't have a good plan to separate the good from the bad. And not only that, but to develop and to deploy the competent ones to plant and water more effectively, a long-term plan for those who are actually qualified, who have the presence of that gifting. Number three, we must do more than certify and create training centers. We've got to do more than this and go back to Jin Chen's training. Number four, there must be a vetting system that creates a stratification, levels of counselors like certification one, two, three, four. That's what we have done with our mastermind program. And then finally, number five, there must be a feedback loop plus mandatory ongoing training for level one counselors, the former ones. Thank you for listening. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.